Welcome to Airwaves, the official podcast of the Naval Air Systems Command. I'm your host, Michael Lauren Prue. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the latest information on COVID-19. Joining us again is Dr. Matthew DeBrava, who is the branch head for the Aeromedical Monitoring and Analysis Human Systems Engineering Department at NOC-AD. He's here to help us with some COVID myth-busting. We're separating the facts from the falsehoods, answering your most urgent questions, and getting you the information you need to keep you, your family, friends, and coworkers safe. Dr. DeBrava? Thanks for joining us. So let's kick off today's conversation by talking about the three available COVID-19 vaccines. What is the status of each? And and really, what does it mean to be considered fully approved versus having an emergency approval? The big news, of course, is Pfizer's vaccine has been fully licensed now by the FDA. It's licensed for people 16 and over. And it also is still under existence under the emergency use authorization. So I get a lot of questions about that. And what's the difference between that? And it has to do with the age groups you can give them to. So if you're over 16, I can prescribe the fully licensed vaccine to you. If you're between 12 and 15, I can't give you the licensed vaccine, but I can give you the vaccine under the emergency use authorization. It is the same product. It just With one label, you can give it under license to people, and with another label, you can actually give it to more people on emergency use authorization. Same product, though. So Pfizer is fully approved. What about Moderna and Johnson & Johnson? Moderna and Johnson & Johnson are still awaiting their full licensure, but it should be coming at any time. Now, with Pfizer being the first to gain full approval, does that mean it's more effective than the other vaccines? No. All the vaccines are showing to be about equally effective. The difference is that under emergency use authorization, the licensure process has been speeded up. So basically, their applications are going to the top of the pile. There's people FDA waiting to review their material as soon as it comes in. So it's not a normal process in the sense that if you and I were to build a a vaccine, it would take many years for it to get to market because it would take years to get through the testing. So under emergency use authorization, the vaccines, Moderna and Johnson Johnson are still there. They're very, very safe to use. And we know this because they didn't do any shortcuts in order to show safety and efficacy of the vaccine. The advantages we've been having is that one, the phase one, two, and three trials that you normally do sequentially to approve a vaccine were allowed to be done concurrently. So all three could be done together to save time. In addition, the hardest thing to do when doing a phase three trial, which usually involves about 6,000 people, it takes years to recruit that number of people. Now, Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson Johnson all got at least about 40,000 people. So they got you know almost seven times the amount of people as required. So it didn't take years to recruit people. Now people say, well, see, that's the difference. So you and I did, a, did it the regular way, and it takes an average of four years to do the phase three trial, then we'd have four years of data. And it's not, that's what people, kind of earn that perception. That's not quite true. When you enroll into a study, you're only enrolled for so many weeks. So our subjects would be enrolled for say 12 weeks. So if you're the first person in my study and I gave you the vaccine, I'd watch you for 12 weeks. Four years later, if the person next to you was the last person in my study, you know, they're number 6,000, I'm only going to watch them for 12 weeks. We don't have four years of data on you. We have 12 weeks of data on you. You're just the first person in there. So people are under this perception that, oh, if they studied the vaccine for years and years and years, we'd have all this data. That's not exactly how it works. They would just have years of data of 
bunch of people that they looked at for 12 weeks. Anything that happened to you after about that 12-week period, it'd be the assumption that it had nothing to do with the medication we gave you. So even though we were able to do the vaccine studies in a very short order of time, none of the safety protocols were bypassed in order to do this. So that's why even under emergency use authorization, the vaccines were very safe. So in other words, instead of questioning the speed at which we developed a vaccine or considering this a rushed process, we really should be looking at this as kind of a miracle of modern science or really what we can all do when we're tackling a problem together. Right. It's Yeah. So the studies were not, they weren't rushed in the sense that we did shortcuts. All the steps were done. It's just we were able to do it on a compressed timeline because we were allowed to do several studies at once. And the amount of people who volunteered for the vaccine were readily available. It took days to recruit them as opposed to years. Right now, we're hearing a lot about booster shots. Who's eligible and who should consider getting a booster shot? So right now, the booster shots are available for those who received the Pfizer vaccine six months or greater. And they are recommending booster shots for people who are in long-term health care facilities, 65 and over or 18 and over if you are in a long-term care facility and first responders, or people with certain medical conditions between the ages of 18 and 49. So, it is, so it's only for Pfizer recipients, and Pfizer is the only one who has a booster available right now. Now, Moderna and Johnson Johnson should be bringing out their boosters available in the next few weeks. But doc, there seems to be a lot of debate about these boosters. Why is that? The debate about boosters is an example of the transparency of this process. So yeah, there is some debate over boosters. There are two major debates. One is, what's the right size dose for the booster between Pfizer and Moderna? Moderna says, hey, our booster should only be half a dose. And Pfizer says, no, our booster should be a full dose. So the FDA said, all right, produce your data, and we'll help you decide what's the appropriate dose. So right now, the people getting the boosters for Pfizer are really getting a third shot. Moderna has to show the FDA the data about what's the appropriate booster dose. Or if they don't do that, then the FDA just might turn around and say, well, just give them a third dose. Johnson & Johnson will have to come up with their booster. And again, hopefully we're going to see this within, you know, by the end of the month. The other debate is between the White House and the FDA and the CDC. And the White House is very much for getting as many boosters out as possible. The FDA and the CDC says, well, that's a great idea. However, we think it's more effective to get more people baseline vaccinated than giving them booster. And so they kind of go back and forth over this. So, and the White House has committed that the FDA and the CDC will be the ones who really put out the policy. Even though they want boosters, they'll go by FDA guidance. Now, the downside to this is that this causes confusion and it will cause some people to have a lack of confidence because there's like, oh, they're, they're arguing, even the scientists don't know. But the reality is this is a kinetic, dynamic situation we're in and we're doing it, we're trying to be as dab and driven as we can and to show you that, yeah, there's still some debates among the data and how we best apply it. And the fact that we can watch it means we should have some, we should have a little faith in the integrity of the process. Okay, so let's talk about some of the COVID myths that are out there. First one, can you get COVID from the vaccine? No, so the, both the mRNA vaccines have, they carry a small piece of transcription protein that will go to your cells not change your DNA, 
but it goes to the, basically the fabrication shop of the cells and it will tell the fabrication shop, make this spike protein. And the spike protein is what we use to fight off the COVID using the vaccines. So the cells will make the spike protein your, and that mRNA will disappear in about two to three hours. And then the spike protein will be made and it will stay around in your system for about two to three weeks. Meanwhile, your immune system will see the spike protein and develop antibodies for it and then file those antibodies away in its memory. So if in case it encounters another spike protein again, you'll have antibodies that can be brought up very quickly to defend yourself from the disease. So because we give you just a piece of transcription code, you cannot get COVID from the vaccine. Now the same is true for Johnson & Johnson. Johnson & Johnson uses what we call an adenovirus vector vaccine. We take a virus that does not produce disease in humans and we feed that protein code into that virus and then we give you the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Your immune system sees the virus, says, ah, that virus isn't a big deal. It doesn't cause disease, but we don't like that protein, so it will start developing antibodies to the protein. You still cannot get COVID from the uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine. People ask this question because they hear about the days of attenuated or live virus vaccines. So a live virus or attenuated virus vaccine is where we take the actual virus, weaken it, and then give it to you as a vaccine. And that's not the case. So you can't get COVID from the vaccine. But why do some people get breakthrough infections after being fully vaccinated? So the vaccine is designed to protect you in case you do get infected. It won't stop you from necessarily being infected with the disease. What it does do is give your immune system the memory to fight off the COVID if you happen to have a breakthrough infection. So the advantages of being vaccinated are, if you do get the disease, it, you'll be able to clear the virus in about half amount of time compared to someone who has never had the disease nor is not vaccinated. And in addition, you'll carry of only a small percentage of the viral load. So it makes you less likely to transmit to others because you have less viral material to actually to put out in the environment around you. Does that mean we're better protected against alternate strains of the virus? It does. And for the Delta variant, it's a little bit more of a tougher customer, but the vaccines are still helping the situation. It doesn't help as much as some of the previous variants, but it's still doing a lot more than not being vaccinated at all. So when making the decision to get the vaccine, a lot of people just want to know what's in it. Where can people find the list of ingredients, side effects, and warnings for each of the vaccines? The CDC publishes all the materials in the vaccine. The manufacturer has all the materials that are listed in the vaccine. If you go get the vaccine, you're given an a, uh, you have informed consent. On the informed consent are listed all the ingredients in the vaccine. So the ingredient people question most is polyethylene glycol, which is used as a preservative. And some people are allergic to it, but it's rare, but it's something, it's something to know about. And that's, what, that's why people wanna see the ingredient list. They wanna know if there's anything in there they're allergic to. If you're allergic to polyethylene glycol, you probably have encountered it in a different vaccine. You may have had a reaction to it. So, but, so far, 215 million Americans have received the vaccine so far, and we're, having, we're not having very many adverse reactions to it. And how do we know the number of adverse reactions? How are we tracking that data? So VAERS is the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. It was developed in the 1990s. And it's a reporting system that if you have some type of adverse or severe adverse reaction to a vaccine, it gets reported. So the CDC and the FDA can monitor the post-marketing vaccine safety of any vaccines. 
So how does the FAIR system work? Who can enter data into the database? And what does that data tell us? People report whatever symptom they have within the first few weeks of the vaccine if they felt like, oh, I was very tired, I had a sore arm, I was very fatigued, they can report that. Now, anybody is allowed to input in that system. So the person who received the vaccine, a family member, a caregiver, a healthcare worker, a physician or person who prescribed the vaccine, the manufacturer, anybody's allowed to do it. And it's not only people inputting it themselves, there's also with now electronic medical records, there are search engines out there that search electronic medical records and they look for diagnostic codes. And if it sees a certain diagnostic code like fatigue or you know, cardiac arrhythmia, it will see if that person had a vaccine in usually about two weeks before that. And if that is the case, then that gets reported to the VAR system. So with that, there is tons of data that goes into the VAR system. Now, people say, well, I look at VARs and it says 16,000 people died of the vaccine. And that's not quite correct. What it is is 16,000 deaths have been reported of people who have received the vaccine because if you receive the vaccine and after a certain specified amount of time, if you die, your death is required to be reported to the VAR system. It doesn't mean you died of the vaccine. So it's all-cause mortality. So if somebody died of, say, a car accident several weeks after they received the vaccine, that death will still be reported. So what they do is they take all these reports of uh, severe adverse reactions and they take, or, or deaths, or many, many adverse reactions, and they have to correlate back to if there's any indication that says, hey, this vaccine is causing this problem. Now, there's a lot of criticism to it. One is that uh, a lot of people see that data and they put it out there saying, oh, look at it, there's 500,000 hospitalizations associated with the vaccine. That's not quite correct. There's 500,000 people who've been hospitalized since they received the vaccine, but we don't know if the vaccine is causing those hospitalizations. So what we have to do is the CDC takes that data and they contact the people who submitted those reports for follow-up and say, hey, tell us what happened, tell us what's going on. Now, some people say, well, it's under, all the adverse events are underreported. That can be true for certain type of adverse events. However, not every adverse event has to be reported because what the CDC looks for are patterns of events that they can flag for safety and then go after it. And it works, it worked in Johnson & Johnson. When eight women out of a million doses had blood clotting disorders that are highly unusual, the CDC followed up with that and said, hey, we think the vaccine may have been associated with these blood clotting disorders so therefore, out of abundance of caution, we're gonna put a black box warning on Johnson Johnson saying if you're a young woman with a blood clotting history, use a different vaccine. So for all the criticism, it still is a highly effective system at finding problems that can be arising from the vaccine. As you mentioned, a lot of debate surrounding the VAERS system. One concern I've frequently heard is that the data is underreported. Is that true? We do hear some people always report, well, there's a study out there that says only 1% of severe adverse event reactions are reported. And that is true, there's a study that says that. But when you go look at the original paper written in 2007 that said that, it referenced a paper written in 1995 about VAERS, and it said, yes, 1% of rashes associated with the MMR vaccine are reported. So that paper kind of came to the conclusion that the less severe the reaction, the more likely it is not to be reported to VAERS. So that same paper also said 68% of people who received polio vaccine and had some kind of polio-like symptom, that was immediately reported to VAERS. 
So again, some people take that one number out of context and they say, well, you know, theirs only reports 1%. Okay, well, let's assume that's true. It still works. It's, it's enough data for them to find problems with the vaccine and focus down on it and make warnings and suggestions and determine if it's safe or not. We have to admit, thanks to social media, that this is the most watched vaccination in the history of humankind. So if there are any severe reactions really associated with the vaccine, they would be easily detected. So the point of VAERS is that it's an input system. People are seeing all the data that's being inputted. What they're not seeing is the actual number crunching behind that and determine if those things are actually truly associated with the vaccine or if the timing is just correlated. And we don't think the vaccine is causing that many issues. So as someone who is not a doctor, not a medical expert, how should I interpret the VAERS data? You, you should interpret it as that that many people and systems are inputting that much data into the VAERS system to be looked at. So, and, so that's the good thing. Now, if you go to the VAERS system, read all the, read all the disclaimers very carefully. It says, hey, this is an inputting system. You can't make judgments based on this. You can't jump to conclusions based on this. This is just the raw data. And the fact that we can actually input that much into the system is, again, it's a transparent system, and you, know, you should have a little more faith in it. Doc, would you say natural immunity or vaccine immunity is better? Boy, that's a great question. And it does spark a lot of debate. So the answer is yes and no. Is it better? Well, yeah, it's natural. You know, your body can produce a more vibrant profile of the, of the virus that attacked it compared to the vaccine. So it's good in that sense. But here's the problem. We don't know how much of an immunity response you're gonna get. We don't know if you had the virus, you know, late in 2020 before the Delta variant showed up, are you gonna have how much protection against the Delta variant? We don't know how much that vaccine will wane, right? We don't know how fast it will wane. We don't know what your response was initially. If you had a mild case of COVID, you may have had a very small immune response and whatever antibodies you had are no longer protective. So that's the downside to the natural immunity. To protect the population, to protect our workforce, it doesn't give us enough of the consistency that we require. So the vaccine codes for a particular protein that we see on most of the virus variants. People have been doing very well in tolerating the vaccine, and the vaccine has been showing working to consistently protect people for about six to eight months. So we know it's a known quantity of your response to the vaccine. So, so national immunity is great. Unfortunately, it's not part of the policy for the workforce that the president put out. It's going to be you get vaccinated and your prior immune status can't be accounted for right now. And one of the reasons we kind of do all this is to show you, look, there's a lot of data out there showing the vaccine is safe and it's very effective. If you had COVID before and you get the vaccine, you're going to have a lot, there's a lot of data that shows that you're going to be very well protected. Now, people argue about, well, there's the Israeli study, right? And they're referred to a particular Israeli study that hasn't come out yet. So there is a preprint service available for papers that have not been peer reviewed or published yet. And it's called, the, so it's a server that's uh, run by Yale, I believe. And you can put your paper on there for preprint review. And so it goes out on that server and then everybody can look at it and then they can give you feedback on the paper. Unfortunately, a lot of people take that as like, oh, this scholarly article, which it is, says this. Well, that's true, but that scholarly article hasn't been published yet. 
it's out there for review. And right now, the Israeli paper that talks about how natural immunity is working better than vaccine immunity is kind of going under some critiques about their methodology and their statistics. So until that paper is fully published, it's an important thing to watch, but it really hasn't put its weight into the debate yet. Now, if you've had COVID, is there still a benefit to getting the vaccine? So the benefit of getting the vaccine from the data that shows so far is that your immune response will be have that much greater potential. So a person who gets the vaccine, basically it will take up your, two weeks later your antibody count goes up and it's kind of like going to Pike's Peak and you roll a ball down, right? And that ball will take six, eight months to roll down the hill. If you had COVID, but without the vaccine, you could be at Pike's Peak, you could be at Mount Everest, you could be on a molehill we don't know, and it takes that long for your immune system to go away when you roll the ball down. So if you get the vaccine on top of having a history of COVID, it turns out your immune response seems to go straight to Everest, and then you're gonna roll the ball down, and how far, it, you know, it takes a long time for that immunity to wane. So there is an advantage to getting the vaccine if you've had COVID, because now you have the first criteria, you've gotten vaccinated, so we know that you're immune response is going to be the same as pretty much everyone else's so we can have a predictable life and protect the workforce. And two, your immune response actually, you know, it'll be so good, we can predict how long it will last. So if you've had COVID, get the vaccine because there's a lot of data that shows that you have the benefit of both worlds. So another reason I've heard from people who have elected not to get vaccinated is they simply don't think they need it. They're healthy, they're young, their chances of surviving COVID are relatively high. What would you say to those individuals? Is there a risk? Should they get vaccinated? Yeah, so again, we're trying to protect people and that might be fine for you. And I'm, if I'm healthy and I'm young, if I get COVID, I'll survive, great. But you're gonna carry it to others and that's the problem. So you might carry it to people who aren't gonna be young, healthy, or who might not survive. If you're young and healthy, well, you'll tolerate the vaccine really well. Why not protect yourself? Because you're not only protecting yourself, you're also protecting the people around you. COVID is a mass disaster striking the US, right? It's a public health emergency. So if everyone pitches in and takes the vaccine, which is a huge help, then we'll have this disaster under control that much more faster. So even if you're young and healthy, and you don't see the benefit of the vaccine for yourself, you're gonna benefit everyone else around you. It's important to treat this for what it is. This is a virus. It doesn't care anything about finding you a susceptible host, getting inside you, multiplying, and then moving on to the next host. And it may or may not cause you great difficulty. You might wind up in the ICU, you might wind up dead, you might wind up with no symptoms at all but it's a gamble, and do you really want to take the gamble? And in the meantime, it's overwhelming our healthcare structure, it's leaving dead people in its wake, and it's ruining our economy because we can't work like we were before. So how this is anything other than a mass disaster, it'd be tough to argue. If we are vaccinated, do we need to continue our safety measures such as wearing a mask and socially distancing ourselves from others? Right. So, yeah, you still should do that because, one, we still have half our population not vaccinated. And of that population, half of them have either no natural immunity or no vaccination. So we still have to protect them. So another big COVID vaccine debate out there involves fertility. 
does the vaccine cause infertility? And should pregnant women get vaccinated? So there is no data that shows that the vaccination is causing any problem with fertility among men or women. There is data that shows that a pregnant woman getting COVID will have a higher likelihood of a cesarean section, an ICU visit, or stillborn. Now, women who have volunteered to get the vaccination have been closely monitored, and there's been an actual set study of 30,000 women that did this in an actual study, plus all the data of any other pregnant woman who wants to contribute to that data pool. And when we watched them, they gave birth, the complication rate of the birth is no greater than the complication rates pre-COVID. So there's no evidence showing that the vaccine has been unsafe for pregnant women. Now, you can't say that's true for COVID. COVID is interfering with pregnancies. It is also interfering with male fertility as well. COVID is a viral disease, and like several other viral diseases, it can lower the sperm count in men temporarily. So if you're really worried about having children, the vaccine seems to be the safer bet compared to having COVID. In today's podcast, we've talked a lot about the safety of these vaccines, but there are still some people who see them as dangerous. There's a belief out there that these vaccines contribute to medical issues and possibly death. Can you go into more detail on evidence related to the number of deaths that are believed to have been directly caused by a COVID-19 vaccination? And how do medical professionals determine a correlation between vaccinations and patient mortality? So overall, no, they're, they're not perfect, but they are the best tool we have. And the vaccines for the COVID crisis have been very well studied. They've been shown to be very well tolerated, and they seem to be pretty effective in helping control the overwhelming aspects of, of the disease. So it's reducing the number of hospitalizations and it's reducing the number of COVID-related deaths. So are there deaths associated with the COVID vaccine? The answer is there's very few associated with it. Their Johnson & Johnson vaccine had a, a safety signal of eight women uh, developing an unusual blood clotting disorder. Now this blood clotting disorder takes place in the brain, in the venous system of the brain. It does occur naturally in women for about three to 5,000 cases per year. They discovered eight cases after a million doses of Johnson Johnson vaccine. So they investigated it and they said, there seems to be, there might be an association. So as a result, and now two of those women died. So as a result, the FDA and CDC put out a black box warning on the Johnson Johnson vaccine saying, well, we saw some deaths. It's not a greater rate than what's naturally occurring but out of an abundance of caution, we're gonna recommend if you are a young woman with a known clotting disorder, we're gonna recommend that you take the mRNA vaccine instead. So that's how they correlate a problem with the vaccine. So when people input into the VAERS system or they report a severe adverse reaction, there's somebody on the end of that, other end of that report who will track that original report down to find out the details and to make a determination if there's an actual association between the vaccine and the cause of that problem. So far, the biggest adverse reactions we're getting from the vaccine are soreness at the injection site, a day of fatigue, an occasional headache. So that's why we think a lot of people out of the 215 million Americans seem to be tolerating the vaccine pretty well. Doc, you've certainly given us a ton of information today. If people wanna do their own research, where is the best place for them to find updated COVID-19 information? 
So a lot of things I say come from the CDC and the FDA. You can go to their websites. They have lots of information on COVID. They'll talk about boosters and they'll give you the links about what exactly the medical conditions they considered are severe enough to get a booster shot. They'll talk about the VAERS system. You can go to the VAERS system data and you will look at it. They'll, they'll have tutorials on how to make these reports and whatnot. So it's, it's all open source, it's all out there. So CDC, FDA, you can go to the manufacturer of the, of the vaccines, they can put out their things. I go to Johns Hopkins Public Health website. We go to the University of Nebraska School of Medicine has a lot of great summaries out there. I refer to that a lot because it's very helpful. And so those are kind of like official sources, right? And remember, we're dealing with a policy, executive order from the president that says, you know, you shall get this vaccine as part of condition to your employment to the U.S. government. This is not a NAVAIR or NOC AD or COMFRC or Weapons Division policy. This is, this is from the president. And the reason we bring this to you is to say, yeah, if you had COVID and we're not gonna exempt you because of your prior COVID vaccination, you can see the data shows that getting the vaccine still benefits you and it's very safe. So that's kind of the point of doing all this, right? So a lot of people are like, well, what about this study and this study? We understand they're out there. We understand people have trepidation about the vaccine. We understand there's data out there that might contradict the overall safety data. And we understand those things. And the people who review these policies are reviewing that data as well. When it comes to COVID-19, why is there so much misinformation out there? And how do you tell whether a source is fake or accurate? Misinformation is usually it's anecdotal. It's like Facebook and YouTube and Instagram, there's a lot of things that are out there that are really great for communication. They're not good for conversations. And a lot of this requires a conversation. It needs to be like, we have this problem. We have a virus dropping down on us. We need a vaccine to help us fight it. We have a vaccine. The vaccine was developed in, you know, in record time, which is amazing. It works very well and it's very safe. So we really knocked it out of the park with this one. So that's one tool. We have to modify our social behaviors. That's another tool. We gotta test ourselves. That's another tool. So this should be pretty straightforward, but there's a lot of inf misinformation out there because there's people with other agendas. And I know the CDC and the FDA have been beaten up a lot during this process, but they're still very reliable source of information. They've been doing an outstanding job considering everything they've had to deal with for the past almost two years. They're like us. They wanna do a good job and they're trying to do a good job and they wanna do the right thing and they wanna make sure their products are safe. They wanna make sure to the FDA and the CDC, America's the fleet forces, right? That's the American population is, is like us taking care of the fleet, right? We wanna make sure planes fly, they're safe, they're effective, right? That's what we are to them. And they're doing their best to make sure that we are gonna be safe and healthy and try to get this disaster under control. So misinformation, I think people know it when they see it. I think if it sounds outlandish, you probably know it's misinformation. Just because you wanna believe it is a different story. We're at this point where people are constantly looking for excuses not to get the vaccine. We need everyone to start looking for reasons to get it. What should I tell friends, family, or coworkers who are hesitant to get the vaccine? This is a problem where a disaster has befallen us there's a virus running around experimenting on us where it's experiment. And the tools to fight it off are to certain social behaviors. The first one is cooperation. And usually when Americans have their back against the wall, that's what we're known for. We've done it every time America's in trouble. So why we're not doing this time, I'm not sure. So the social behaviors, wearing masks, 
social distancing, right? Telework when you can. The second thing is testing. So, and these are the things we were doing before we had the vaccine and it was working. So let's go back to, you know, make sure we're testing so we can keep, you know, keep tabs on what's going on to see if the vaccines are being successful, to see if our behaviors are being successful and modify things if they're not. And then finally, we've got a vaccine, not perfect, but it's the best tool in the shed and it can really help us bring this disaster under control quickly. But we gotta go back to rule number one, cooperation. You know, the mandate's down and a lot of people hate it and we appreciate your feelings, but to be honest, it's a simple mandate to follow because the vaccine, and we're trying to show you, it's been safe, it's effective, it's useful. We understand people's arguments against it, but it's a disaster and we need your help. So the more people that help, the faster we get under control. So Doc, what do you think it's gonna take for us to get back to normal, to a lifestyle that somewhat resembles what we had pre-COVID? People ask me, well, what's the end point? Well, the end point would be most of us are vaccinated. Most of us have that, you know, have gotten our booster shots. Most of us have some type of immunity, but it, like I said, for our purposes, vaccine immunity is the one that really counts right now. And then that way, if another wave comes through, we're ready for it. So if we get the disease, we're less likely to be symptomatic. We're less likely to be in the hospital. We're less likely to be in the ICU. We're less likely to die of it. So we can survive an onslaught of the disease. So that way we can keep going back to work and keep our economy up and running. And then, you know, our social behaviors can ho hopefully be modified by that time where we're not wearing masks because everyone's vaccinated. And we're like, hey, we can, you know, talk to people like normal again. So what's back to normal is we have enough protection from the disease that once it surges again, we're not overwhelming our healthcare system, we're not wrecking our economy, and very few people are dying of it. So that would be the, the normal thing. As we wrap up today, give us your final thoughts. Why should someone get the vaccine? This is a pandemic, and we have to see past all the politics and all the sociology and say, hey, this is gonna cause us a lot of harm. And in the past, whenever we have viruses coming through, the best thing we've been able to do is develop a vaccine. And we've done that. They're proving to be very safe, well tolerated, very effective. And if you're eligible to get it, you should get it. And you should be proud, you're an American, because you have three choices of vaccines. Not, not every country can boast that. So we understand the inconvenience, we understand how much is this you know, unfair, but the reality is we're in a disaster. And by definition, it's presenting us in unfair certain circumstances, and we have to fight back the only way we know how. And we have to do it in a cooperative manner. Dr. DeBrava, we really appreciate you being here today and helping us sort through the facts and some of the misconceptions surrounding COVID and the available vaccines. If you have questions, please visit the Navier COVID-19 SharePoint site. Our COVID-19 incident response team and subject matter experts like Dr. DeBrava are standing by to help and get an answer to your question quickly. You can also visit the Safer Federal Workforce FAQs for more information. And that's it for this edition of Airwaves. Stay safe and thanks for listening. <laughs>